The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Stephen Buhner, is a national and international speaker, speaker on herbal medicine, emerging diseases, and complex interrelationships and ecosystems. He's the author of many books, including Herbal Antibiotics, Herbs for Hepatitis in the Liver, and The Lost Language of Plants. Stephen Buhner is a tireless advocate for the citizen scientist, the amateur naturalist, and community herbalist, and is here today on Health Watch to talk about his book, Herbal Antivirals, Natural Remedies for Emerging and Resistant Viral Infections. Welcome back to Health Watch, Stephen Buhner. Hi, thanks for having me on again. So, so tell us, Stephen, what inspired you to write Herbal Antivirals as a follow-up to your antibiotic book? Um, well, I'd been thinking about it for a long time, and very little's been done in the Western world on treating viruses, and it was just sort of a huge hole in the market. And, and it's very similar to my interest in um, herbal antibiotics in that I've been interested in resistant bacteria for a long time. And so viruses sort of fit in there, too, because there's a lot of ecological pressure on viruses, and they're starting to move more strongly into the human community, and I really wanted to do something um, about that, and it just sort of was a natural outgrowth of that first book. So, so tell us, what are some of the differences in when you're approaching treating viruses versus bacteria? What are some of the things that are unique about viruses that uh, present interesting uh, challenges or, or scenarios that you have to take into consideration? Well, viruses are incredibly adaptable just because of their structure, and they're um, made to live inside other organisms. And you have to understand they've been living inside other organisms for billions of years, so they're highly adaptable in that way and extremely intelligent about responding to immune system responses so that you have to look at it I mean to a certain extent you can look at it more simplistically at you know getting an antiviral herb to kill a virus but if the disease starts getting more complex then you have to um, start looking at what's happening in the body specifically for instance looking at cytokine Dynamics. Those are small um, messenger molecules that can stimulate inflammation in particular ways to allow the viruses to penetrate cells. And then you have to start to look at this sort of complex of responses to shut down those dynamics um, so that you can protect the integrity of the, the cellular structures. So there's a debate in biology about are, are viruses alive? Are they particles or are they organisms? And this is partially due to the fact that they're only active when they're inside the cell of another creature. So tell us your thoughts on that debate and, and its usefulness. I think it's a really stupid debate. It's like, you know, you have to understand viruses are more like a seed than anything else. And so you're looking at seeds, which is sort of a dormant form of the plant. And but what's interesting is when you look at viruses and seeds both, they are constantly monitoring their exterior environment to determine whether they're finding the soil in which they need to grow. They also 
um, are able to stimulate behavior in the organisms, the viruses in the organisms they infect, to allow their spread in a very particular way. I mean, they basically take over certain cellular functions in the organism to promulgate their spread. But, I mean, you think, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, most people don't think of plants as intelligent either, but, you know, I, I think it's fascinating if I have carrots in the refrigerator, as soon as spring starts, they'll start putting out roots. I mean, how do they know? They're in a refrigerator. So you have to understand that there's a very... Um, sensitive perceptual and intelligent capacities in both seeds and in viruses and uh, our habitual process of not attributing life or intelligence to other forms that are different from us is really is what's leading to a lot of the problems that we're experiencing as a species now and especially in healthcare. Well, tell us a little bit about the warning that you give in herbal antivirals against the idea of considering viruses and bacteria as sort of the dangerous or virulent other. And then um, as a corollary to that, could you talk a little bit about what you consider some of the, the beneficial ecosystem functions of viruses? Well, the thing is that we have, we're trained in the West from a very early age, as soon as we start school, to believe that we're the only intelligent actors and really the entire environment around us, we look at as sort of a static backdrop that's there for us. It's almost kind of like a, an entertainment venue, sort of like Disneyland or, or, you know, an amusement water slide park that we can move through the world without any real awareness of what it actually is and do pretty much what we want. And the truth is extremely different than that. We're ecological beings that emerge out of an ecological matrix, and there's life forms that are highly intelligent that have been here much longer than the human species, and they take priority. Plants and bacteria and viruses are three of the most important um, life forms on this planet, and they're a lot more important to the functioning of the planet than human beings. If they disappeared, we would disappear. If we disappeared, they're going to go on just fine. So it's our sort of anthropocentric belief that we're you know, beloved of the gods and more intelligent than everything else that leads us constantly into difficulty. So by seeing them as highly intelligent and foundational, it allows us to respond to them a lot more intelligently and um, respectfully. So... I mean, viruses perform a couple of really crucial functions. Um, one of the things that they do is that they interblend all of the genetic structures of every life form on Earth. When they're transmitted into us from a mosquito, they'll quite often snip off a piece of DNA and leave a piece of DNA in its place. So we actually have plant DNA, bacterial DNA, all different kinds of DNA structures woven into who we are, and it's a way of keeping the genomic forms of the earth more vital and not quite so separated. Um, there's a certain kind of interblending that's important there. And, and secondly, viruses are highly functional in protecting ecosystems. They're, they tend to live fairly benevolently with the life forms they inhabit in particular ecosystems, but when those ecosystems are disrupted, we have to think of viruses as more like a swarm intelligence rather than 
individual identities. And so when that ecosystem is disturbed, part of that swarm intelligence splits off, jumps into the new species, and causes very severe illness and quite often will kill, like, for instance, um, primates, monkeys that move into a certain range, um, whereas they're inhabiting monkeys already in that region and they don't cause severe disease. So it's a... And we're seeing that with Ebola right now, with the areas of ecological disturbance being the, the areas we're seeing the Ebola virus leap. Right, and that's very much what happens. And you, get, you begin disturbing these ecosystems that are in very sophisticated balance by cutting off the trees, damaging the structures by people moving in, and then the viruses jump. And they tend to be extremely virulent once they do. So, yeah, the Ebola virus is a really good example. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to herbalist Stephen Buhner about his latest book, Herbal Antivirals, Natural Remedies for Emerging and Resistant Viral Infections. So uh, in, in conventional allopathic medicine, there are very few medical treatments that people get when they have a viral infection or most viral infections, and it seems like much of the focus is on on vac- vac- developing vaccines for prevention. Um, so the, the herbal antiviral books seems like a, 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 nice, uh, pl- a nice thing to potentially fill a gap in medical care. Maybe we can start with uh, upper respiratory infections and the flu and flu-like viruses, and you, you can talk a little bit about some of the things you might suggest that people do for uh, prevention and treatment. Yeah, and that's the thing. There, there's only three or four maybe antiviral um, medicines available through allopathic medicine. They have mixed success. Um, but the thing to understand is that viruses have been around a long time, and they infect plants just like they do everything else. And the plants can't call a doctor. They can't go to the hospital. They can't run and hide. They just have to sort of sit there and take it. And they've figured out um, very sophisticatedly how to create antiviral um, chemicals that they then release to deal with these. So there's a a wide range of antiviral um, plants that are very, very excellent for treating infections. So, um, and of course, right now, the CDC has said that the new influenza moving across the country has reached sort of epidemic proportions. And they're not very good at treating it, really. They sort of give palliative care. But, I mean, for instance, uh, I tend to use ginger a lot for influenza infections and upper respiratory infections, and that's one of my primary go-to initial herbs I use. But it's only effective if you use fresh ginger juice. You can't use dried. It doesn't work. So I have a juicer and I, at the beginning of the season, will buy a couple of pounds of ginger and juice it and keep it in the refrigerator. And then I just add to that, I take about three or four ounces of that, add about six or eight ounces of hot water, some honey, some lime juice, and some cayenne. And I'll drink that, you know, three to six times during the day. It's extremely effective for treating that kind of an infection. Um, Echinacea and gustifolia, I don't think purpurea is useful here at all, but echinacea and gustifolia is strongly antiviral, but it has to touch the infected cellular structures to be able to deal with the viruses. So that's why very early on I'll take some 
echinacea and gustafolia, and I just sort of hold it in my mouth and then dribble it down over the back of the throat. It's, it's really effective if you get it right as you just start to get sick. Once you get sick, ginger is a lot better. And then if you get really sick um, and seriously ill with the flu, then, you know, I go to some stuff that's a lot more intense. Lomatium is a particularly good herb for dealing with um, severe influenza infections. And I usually blend it with red root and licorice because licorice is strongly antiviral. It's a great synergist, so it helps potentiate the other herbs. And red root is extremely good for helping the lymph system become more active, the spleen, um, for instance, and helping clear out sort of the dead viruses and the detritus that builds up. And, w- and when you mentioned about echinacea, that it needs to actually touch the tissues, that would eliminate using tablets or capsules as a viable method of, of echinacea administration. Right. They're completely useless. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and how would your approach to non-respiratory viruses differ? Than, so, so some it's not doesn't have the flu, but let's say they have the herpes virus or they have an outbreak of, of shingles. Uh, would you be thinking of an entirely different class of herbs as, as antiviral uh, intermediaries, or would you still be thinking of some of the same ones? Well, like shingles is an interesting one. It's... Uh incredibly uncomfortable and painful, but lemon balm is strongly antiviral and really specific for the herpes group. I I tend to use it for um, shingles outbreaks as pretty much the predominant thing and both taking taking the tincture internally and then I usually use like either lemon balm oil or something to put on topically and I found it to be extremely effective. When I was developing the book, I picked out, I forget exactly how many, 15 or 20 different viral infections that seemed to be the most common emerging ones and came up with a protocol for every one of those. But I focused mostly on um, influenza and encephalitis viruses more, and then the others I touched on more lightly. And so with encephalitis viruses, how, how would a treatment protocol differ in terms of the herb choices, not necessarily in terms of dosage? Well, okay, the, the thing that happens with that is that, you know, I have broken down the herbal antivirals in the book. Really, they're kind of three categories. There's broad-spectrum antivirals, there's sort of a medium-spectrum, and then there's um, narrow-spectrum antivirals that are are good for, you know, uh, a really much more narrow range. So with the uh, encephalitis viruses, I look more at using broad-spectrum antivirals like um, Hutinia and uh, Isatis, both of which are invasives, which I think is fascinating, and uh, Chinese skullcap root, bagel skullcap. Um, those three are really good broad-spectrum antivirals. But when you get this kind of an encephalitis virus, it begins to affect cellular structures in the brain. And so there I really look in depth at dealing with um, strong anti-inflammatory herbs that cross the blood-brain barrier and then really will shut down the mechanisms that are the viruses are, are stimulating in the brain to protect those structures. And Oddly enough, um, one of the greatest herbs for that is really um, kudzu root, which is also an invasive all throughout the south. So kudzu root, cordyceps, for instance, those are both 
extremely good. And another one that's wonderful for that is Salvia milteriza, or red sage, dantian, it's sometimes called. And what do you think the interesting connection is between the fact that a lot of these herbs are invasive species in ecosystems and that they're also useful for for addressing viruses? Uh, well, there's this fascinating dynamic that's been written about since Hippocrates and real reductionists, mechanicalists, the reality police, they don't really like talking about things that they can't explain very well. But it's been commonly known for a very long time and observed on in some depth that when diseases begin to move into certain areas, plant populations either precede them or come about contemporaneously. They begin growing in that region. And the fascinating thing is when we get a lot of these invasive plants moving through different ecosystems, the biggest question that's always most important is what what's their function? Why are they coming in there? They act to help correct ecological damage in that area, even though the area might look to the uneducated eye like it's fairly healthy. But they also tend to be specific for the kind of diseases that are moving into those regions. And so I think it's just a fascinating process. It's It fits well within more holistic earth system science understandings, the guy hypothesis, but it doesn't really fit within the sort of reductive linear cause and effect thing. And I mean, one of the easiest ones that I talk about most often is Japanese knotweed root is real specific for Lyme disease, and it, it moves into regions where Lyme is becoming endemic about six months before the Lyme emerges in that area. Um, there's explanations for it, but they're really long and detailed, but oh. it's just kind of a fascinating process. Yeah, really. that's super fascinating. We hear a lot about uh, antibiotic bacteria forming antibiotic resistance, and, and in herbal antivirals, you also go into the ways in which viruses develop resistance to treatments against them, That, um, but that with herbs, similar to antibacterial herbs, they don't develop resistance to plant medicines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's not quite the same process. I mean, you have to understand that herbal medicines, plants are living beings. They're highly intelligent and extremely sophisticated. They're the best chemists on the planet. Most of our pharmaceutical medicine is actually adaptations of stuff the plants have been doing for a long time. We're really kind of Johnny-come-lately. So... The thing is, the herbal medicine we harvest this year is not the same herbal medicine that was harvested 50 years ago or 100 years ago because the viruses change and adapt to the antiviral substances that are created. So the plants then moderate those, modulate them, shift them, create new substances. So you're getting this constant kind of response back and forth and that's one of the reasons why the standardization of herbal medicines is just simply stupid. It's because if we standardize for something now, 50 or 100 years from now, even five years from now, the plants that are coming into being are developing new substances all of the time. And we have to look at them as a complex of chemicals that all work together to produce this outcome. They're much more sophisticated than monotherapies, and they're also constantly adapting. So we need to sort of flow along with that, be as adaptable as they are. 
And what are your thoughts on fever management and when that should happen and when a fever should be allowed to run its course? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, fevers are important because most bacteria and viruses that get used to living in a body of about our temperature range, and one of the things that happens is our temperature goes up. It makes our body, our ecology, less hospitable to those microorganisms. You know, and the thing is, once the fever gets to a certain point, it can become dangerous because it, it can damage the system itself. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about where that line is, you know, maybe 104, 105, somewhere in there where it gets, begins to get too high. And, and there's ways to deal with that that are really easy. I mean, the simplest, of course, is to just simply use a, a cool washcloth and bathe the body. Um, bone set is actually tremendous for that. Any kind of herb that causes sweating, like peppermint, uh, bone set has a really nice antiviral range itself, and it helps with a lot of symptoms of infection. So um, that's a, a hot tea. It needs to be done as a hot tea, and I usually use that or peppermint. Both of those are extremely good. And then if we were looking at um, people who aren't sick with a virus, and are, and are hopefully, say, through the winter here in Portland wanting to prevent getting upper respiratory infections. I know you mentioned ginger, but you also have a section in the book uh, in Herbal Antivirals about foods that are particularly good for immune system health and also just generally classes of herbs that are good for prevention. Can, can you talk about some of those for us, too? Well, yeah, really keeping the immune system up is really important. And usually I work with adaptogenic um, herbs And those are herbs that sort of help your functioning be more responsive to any kind of um, pressure on your system, whether it's internal pressure or external pressure. So astragalus is probably one of the most famous. Eleutherococcus, which used to be called Siberian ginseng, is really wonderful. Um, rhodiola is extremely good. Um, those are, are some of the real good ones. Cordyceps is one that's it's got a lot of antiviral action, and it's got a lot of protection for the brain as well. That's one that I take pretty much daily, and those are all fairly easy to find, and, and they really do help quite a bit. What are your thoughts on astragalus during actual infections? I know some people in Chinese medicine only use astragalus for prevention and don't use it during treatment because of this idea of trapping the thief in the house, that it's, it closes the, the pores, stops sweating, and, and keeps the organism inside. Is, is that a concern of yours, or do you think that's not really a relevant Well, it's concern? like everything else. You get one herbalist in a room, they'll have an argument with themselves. <laughs> you, know? So right. like, you know, there's different schools of thought. And one of the most interesting things about astragalus is that astragalus is extremely good for septic shock, and there's people in China that have been using it for that. So when the system, the organs begin to shut down, like that can happen with influenza, can happen with Ebola, it can happen with a lot of things. Oddly enough, astragalus and dong quai, um, um, my brain went blank on the, the common name. Anyway, those two herbs are extremely good, along with salvia milteriza, and taking those in really large doses will shut down the whole um, over-inflammatory process that's going on. So, you know, I'm not so hooked into that. You can't use this herb for that sort of thing. I think things are a lot more complex than that, and it really depends on the system, the moment in time, and what seems like the right herb. But this is really more of an art than a science, and I don't think it'll ever become kind of a 
a reductive science. Things sure. Is too complicated. And astragalus and Don Quai both are used in, in f- as food medicines as well, put into congees and into soups right. for and, prevention. And a lot of these herbs that are, are good as adaptogens, they really are food-grade herbs. You can take them in massive quantities all the time, and people in China quite often do so. And, and Stephen, do you have a, a good website or, uh, or resources that you point people to if they want to learn more? Yeah, my website is guyanstudies.org, G-A-I-A-N studies.org. That's a really good one. And if you just sort of get on there, I mean, Rosemary Gladstar Sage Mountain is extremely excellent for people who want to learn how to become community herbalists. And there's really a lot of great people out there in the world now. And um, and in Portland, there's quite a lot of wonderful people as well. And so if they just begin looking on the Internet, they're going to find somebody amazing quite rapidly. And are you working on something else at the moment? I'm actually updating my line book, which is 10 years old now, and it needs to become a lot more sophisticated. So that's sort of the next project. Oh, that sounds interesting. Well, it was great having you back on Health Watch today. I really enjoyed both uh, the herbal antibiotics and the, the herbal antiviral book quite a bit. Great, thanks. We're talking today to herbalist Stephen Buner about his latest book, Herbal Antivirals, Natural Remedies for Emerging and Resistant Viral Infections. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. And next up is Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health.